Hey, Scott here. Thanks for joining us on the Fly Over Country podcast. We are so grateful for everybody who listens in each week. We've got a growing audience, and uh, we're uh, glad to hear from you. Don't uh, forget to hit us up on Twitter. Uh, and uh, we also post, um, if you're listening to this on audio, you can see a lot of our interviews on video on our on our YouTube channel as well. So consume our content, post it, uh, let us know how you like it. And if there are guests that you want to hear from that we can get for you, let us know. We'll try to get them and uh, bring them on the show. This week, I am so pleased about the guest. His name is Drew Holden. You may not have heard of Drew, but if you're on Twitter and you're someone who consumes a lot of media content like I do, Drew Holden has become an essential resource. On Twitter, he is at Drew Holden 360, at Drew Holden 360. And what Drew is famous for is doing these long threads, exposing hypocrisy, exposing how things are just not true, and really shining a light on some media narratives, on some Democratic politician narratives. And when he grabs onto a subject, he is an absolute bulldog. He is one of the best, I think, public affairs, political affairs, information watchdogs right now uh, in all of social media. Again, it's at Drew Holden 360. The man's name is Drew Holden. You also see him writing occasionally for the New York Times, for Fox News, the Washington Post, National Review Online, and the Washington Free Beacon. I want you to listen to this conversation. Drew was extremely insightful, and I'm so excited to present it to you right here on the Flyover Country Podcast with Scott Jennings. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. All right, welcome back to the Flyover Country Podcast. I'm Scott Jennings. Appreciate you being with us this Week We have a great episode, as I mentioned at the top of the show. Um, this is one of those uh, weeks where I'm having someone on the show who I don't really know, but I've been excited to have on the show because I wanted to talk to the guy. His name is Drew Holden. And Drew, thanks for being with us on the Flyover Country podcast. Scott, the pleasure is mine, sir. I really appreciate you having me on. And you're right. It's great. It's great. I'll, I'll be it through a camera to, to get to meet you. I- that's why I started this podcast, because there's a whole bunch of people that I uh, I, I want to meet out there. And so I figured they would be more likely to talk to me if I put a camera and a microphone uh, in front of them. Drew, you are um, you are famous uh, on Twitter uh, for your threads. You're the fam- you're the thread guy. So if you're a, like, a, uh, especially if you're a conservative and you're on Twitter and you uh, spend a good chunk of your day online outraged by something you read and. <laughs> The media or something a Democrat said or something the White House did, Drew shows up and then does a thread either exposing how wrong it was or exposing the hypocrisy or exposing the stupidity of it. And so as frustrated as you get with what you've seen, Drew comes in and you're like a sad. You're like the aloe, aloe plant of the uh, conservative uh, Internet. So I just want to start. The reason I wanted to have you on is because I, I wanted to, to, to ask you principally, how did you decide? To start doing this, because when I read your threads, I see these are time consuming research projects. They take a lot of work. You don't half ass it. And so tell us here on the Flyover Country pod, how did Drew Holden start doing threads and what was the first one you did? Yeah, yeah, actually. So you're right. They are they are certainly time consuming. I, I, feel, I feel like lately it's really started to hit me of just how time intensive they they can be. I, I started almost two years ago now. And what, what it originally prompted, I didn't even really know, like the idea of a thread as kind of a construct or a thing didn't really make sense to me. 
But I remember I was I was reading the news actually after Don Imus had passed away, and there was just this level of, of ferocity in the headlines and the obituaries and the write-ups about him. Right? Who? So Don Imus, famous conservative personality, he made a, a really ugly remark at one point in his professional career about the Rutgers women's basketball team. Um, and then spend a lot of time trying to apologize for that, I think, right? And so I think it's it's best to not try and define someone by the, their worst moment. He raised a ton of money for cancer and, and for other charities and, and seemed, at least to my take, to have learned from it toward the end of his life. Um, be that as it may, he's a, he's a shock jock, right? He's a radio personality who uh, was just absolutely lampooned by the corporate press when he had passed away. And I thought to myself, this can't always be the case. And so I looked back and it, it happened to take place about a month, month and a half after uh, the assassination of General Soleimani of, mm-hmm. of Iran. Yep. And I looked uh, in, in particular, I, I looked at a headline from the, the Washington Post that referred to Soleimani as, as Iran's most revered general. Yes. And I looked at it. I looked at it and I was like, man, you know, you can you can take a look at these words and think about them differently. The New York Times did an interview with this, this very sad Iranian student who said that they always felt comfortable. He was like a security blanket out in the world to have him exist. And so I, I read, I looked back and I was like, something's off here, right? No, right. Matter, no matter what somebody thinks of Imus, there's no way you can think more lowly of him than a, a mass murdering terrorist, right? Like that doesn't, that just doesn't compute regardless of your politics. And so I put, I put them all side by side. Uh, and, I thought, and I just I just tagged the outlets, and I think I left the rest to the reader to say, "Look, this this is ridiculous. This can't this can't be this can't be real." And it got some engagement. I mean, at the time, I didn't I didn't really have any Twitter followers. I mean, I had a couple of hundred or, or something, and it took off. And I I, I thought to myself, I was like, "Wow, um, if what I think about the corporate press is true, this is not a one-off, right? There there are other examples of this across time." And so I started kind of looking for them to say, "Where are these?" It really did start originally with hypocrisy of. Where is it where we're describing two things that are at least on their surface relatively similar, but they get described in radically, radically different ways? Uh, and over time, that's, of course, taken on a, a bit of a life of its own. And, you know, unfortunately, it, it certainly keeps me busy. But there are a lot of these examples, right? There are a lot of these kind of problems and blind spots. And I've, I've found that Twitter, and especially with the screenshots, right, the things that you really can't run from, tends to be a good way to highlight that when the discrepancy is, is really considerable. How often do you find that when you do one of your threads where you're sort of exposing, like in this case, it was a Washington Post headline that you were upset about. Mm-hmm. Um, how often do you find that when you when you pick something out that's so egregious and you do a thread on it, the people that you're lampooning or the people you're exposing, do they ever contact you? Do they ever come back on you? How, how often do you find yourself either in a public or private spat with the people that you're, yeah. you're fact checking? It's, it's rare. Um, it, it has happened a few times. There's been a few times where I think I just missed the mark. And so I remember Ian Bremmer had called me out at one point because he was like, he kind of took this out of context. Uh, and you've got to have, and he's like, and I get what you're saying here. There are a lot of other really good examples. So I don't, I'm not really sure why you looked me in here. And so from time to time that happens, uh, once in a blue moon, I'll, I'll have someone who blocks me. There are a few people who haven't, and it, it continues to kind of surprise me. I'm sure they have me muted. Uh, but it's, to be honest with you, it's very rare that anyone reaches out and contacts me back. Uh, I, I started trying to tag the individual reporters who byline these pieces because usually what, what tends to happen is it, I spend my time focused on mistakes that most of the corporate press have made as opposed to one specific outlet. And so what I've tried to do is go through and not just tag these outlets, but tag the reporters who bylined it. Because who knows, maybe I'm wrong, right? If, if they want to push back in good faith, in public, in private, what have you, and say, no, 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 this isn't true, this isn't fair, I'm happy to have that conversation.
conversation, uh, it, it very rarely happens. Do, do you sort of view yourself as something of an ombudsman for, you know, sort of the t- Twitter journalism? I mean, you know, th- there was a time when when corporate media outlets, big newspapers would have somebody like that. Uh, you know, there were more editors, there were more people who provided oversight. But I sort of look at your stuff and I think, you know, this is sort of the new oversight. Right. And and it's, it's you know, you're not being paid to do it. Uh, you're just right. an interested party. You obviously are a conservative. But that doesn't really matter. I mean, what matters is, mm-hmm. are people getting things right? And and it, is that how you view your role? Do you think that that's the sort of the, the future of, of, of the way this is going to work? Media outlets don't employ people like you, so you have to just sort of show up and do it as a public service? Yeah, you know, I, I don't want to give myself too too much credit in terms of ombudsman's myth. I'm saying it wrong. Ombudsman. Um, and so I, I, I guess the, the short answer to your question is yes, I'm trying to provide that public service. Right. I, I, I do earnestly believe that it needs to happen. I'm doing it as yeoman's work. I'm doing it in my spare time. And so I, I think it's an important public good. Um, but ideally, I think what I what I'm hoping will happen over time is that if I spend enough time holding up a mirror, that enough people will be able to connect the dots. Because one, one of kind of my hypotheses about all of this is I think a lot of this stuff really is a blind spot. I think a lot of conservatives probably have a darker perspective in terms of why the media does what they do and, and what's driving that and what's motivating it. And I think for me, while there are certainly bad actors out there, I think what it really comes down to is no one's looking, no one's paying attention, or at least not enough people are. The news cycles move quickly, people move on to whatever the next latest and greatest thing is. And so what I'm trying to do is hold up that mirror as often as possible when these types of things happen. Uh, I won't pretend that I have a high degree of confidence that over time that will cause a New York Times or a Washington Post to step back and say, oh, wow, you know, we've we really got to start regulating this stuff ourselves. And so I do think that they'll probably just, you know, over time, end up with more people like me who are spending more time kind of fact checking these things, calling balls and strikes as well as we know how. And yeah, doing that, I think, you know, again, at, at the risk of a little bit of self-flattery, trying to do that through the lens of public service, because at the end of the day, the trust in the media is, is bottoming out, right? It's hitting all-time lows left and right. Uh, and I think that needs to be fixed. And I'm trying to play a tiny, tiny role in helping that be fixed. Uh, and if it can't be fixed internally, then perhaps some external pressure can help move that along. What, what I have detected in, in your stuff, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I think you view the media, and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because I think you view the media generally the way I do, which is that a free and trusted press is vital to the functioning of American democracy. And and I'm sure um, you're as chagrined as I am about the lack of trust in our media institutions. And one of the reasons I participate in it to the extent that I do is because I try everything I do, and I'm a conservative and I provide commentary, but I never go on TV thinking I'm going to make something up or I'm going to shade something or I'm going to omit something for the purpose of further driving my point. I want to make sure everything I say is true. You know, I have a lot of, uh, I take a lot of pride in, in, you know, even if you don't like what I say, you'll never be able to say I, I was dishonest. And, and, I, and I think you, I detect that you see it that way. Do you believe that your f- essential fact-checking of these things is making a difference? Do you think that, can you tell ever that the people that you've you've fact-checked or that you've, uh, you know, threaded on, do you, do you think it is impactful on the margins or more than that? Uh, or do you think it's going to take a lot longer time to sort of get improvement out of uh, the industry? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a good question. I think 
maybe on the margins, right? And maybe with individual reporters on the margins. I think one of the things, you know, if I'm, if I'm looking at kind of data and metrics on these things, I do have more reporters reach out to me uh, in private and say, oh man, this, this whole thing, right? When you, when you have kind of these, these news cycles that implode and implode pretty quickly, uh, I, I think there has to be some measure of shame already that I'm trying to tap into. Uh, but I do think there, that this is a big shift. And in order to, to turn this thing, it's going to take a lot more time. It's going to take a lot more effort. It's going to take a lot more hands on the wheel, right, to be able to try and turn this thing. Um, but I do think that, particularly under a Democratic administration, you, you we have seen the media at least sort of take on more of a watchdog role, particularly of late. Um, and I think if you keep beating down on important talking points that are that are not just accurate, but are unassailable, that you can start to change this perception. I don't want to take credit for it. I think what I end up doing in a lot of cases is I'm trying to speak to an audience that I think will be more receptive to me, maybe than someone who's a little bit more of a fire breather on some of these issues. Uh, but, but I do think that that pressure is starting to impact people. And I think some of it is because the American people aren't as easily fooled as I think some people and some politicians would like to pretend that they are. And so when you have people tuning out the media, when you have outlets and organizations who are seeing their readerships and their viewerships decline pretty precipitously, I think you have to start to assume, if you're willing to act in good faith, that some of this is driven by content that people simply don't trust anymore. I guess one of the, the questions uh, that that uh, media people have to ask themselves every day, and I, and, and I think the business end of it is, you know, how much are we doing here to try to please an audience and how much are we doing here to deliver the truth? And I, and I do think there are audience demands for narratives. You know, there are mm-hmm. narratives that people want to be true and then they want things that happen in our world to fit neatly into those boxes. But right. the fact is they rarely do. And one of the things you um, did recently that I thought was particularly impactful was uh, going through the coverage of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. And you did some tweets on it. You also wrote a piece about it. And the headline of the piece was everything the media told you about Kyle Rittenhouse was wrong. But it was wrong because they were trying to fit an event into a very neat box around the narrative uh, that, you know, there were essentially these white supremacist vigilantes uh, roaming the countryside when that that Mm -hmm. turned out not to be the case at all. Maybe talk a little bit about the Rittenhouse case. I mean, if if there is a textbook example of what you're trying to fix, it is this, right? It it is. It is. And, you know, I think there's a couple of, call it a hallmark of the sort of media moments that I I think become the sorts of things where my ears kind of of go up and I'm I'm waiting for a potential thread maybe to be the case. And so the Rittenhouse story from its start was, was one of those types, right? We've got a situation where we don't know a lot on the ground very quickly, but it is very, very quickly taken and jammed into those boxes that you talk about, right? What are the facts we know on the ground? There is a kid, 17 years old, happens to be white, has a gun, shots were fired, there are fatalities in the midst of a national reckoning over race. I think what happened was you saw a lot of people take those, those disparate data points while we were still waiting for a ton of information to come out. Forget even the trial, we're talking about police reports being made public, right? Very, very quickly, we saw a, a narrative kind of congeal around those limited data points that fit very neatly into, I think, kind of the, that media talk track, right? There had been a ton of coverage about the ways that white and black people, particularly men, have disparate interactions with the police. And so you, there, were, there are all these kind of pinpricks of, well, imagine if you were black. Well, 
why was he there in the first place? Well, why does anyone need a weapon of war in the first place for getting an American? Right. And so you, you start to see these details come out. And then I think what really got me, though, was very, very quickly, the language around him, both from your, your talking heads, your pundits, people weren't necessarily always acting in good faith, but even from media outlets were definitive. There, there was a very strong viewpoint about what must have happened, what that must mean, what that must say about the United States, and what that must say about race in the United States. I mean, 48 hours after the shooting was announced, the New York Times already had a piece up, 32 paragraphs long, going through Rittenhouse's social media posts and talking about how he supported Blue Lives Matter. Right? It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't take a lot of uh, a lot of forethinking to see what the reader is meant to pull out of this information. Right. It's that something happened, and this person is a certain way, and we can use our our stereotypes, our perceptions about people, and we can sort out those messy details and facts and everything else that might underlie this case. Uh, and it turned out that that was wrong. And, and I think we knew. You know, I remember heading into the verdict of the trial, and I think it was mostly a, a foregone conclusion. You had coverage on places like MSNBC who were already talking about how awful it's going to be when this person walks. And I, I remember thinking to myself as I'm kind of constructing this thread under the assumption that he probably will be found not guilty, at least on some of the charges, if not all of them. And I thought to myself, man, where was even this level of clear-eyedness? Where was that when all of this first started? Because we do see the media in a lot of other cases who are willing to suspend disbelief on cases, on, on facts when things happen, right? There was a there was a black motorist up in uh, Waukesha who drove yep. through a, a Christmas parade recently, right? There was a lot of assertions and allegations on the conservative side in this case that says, well, we have six white people who have died. We have a parade of predominantly white people killed by a black man who had these posts on the social media that seemed at least racially motivated, if not outright racist and certainly anti-Semitic. And so in that case, when you, if you look at the media coverage, it is that there is no there is there's nothing inferenced right there's no subtext it is right this thing happened we're still waiting for well, not only that but 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 uh in many cases the tweets and the headlines were uh, uh it made it seem like the car drove itself suv right. drives into crowd well no it didn't drive itself into the crowd it, uh exactly. and, and so there was an attempt to even uh, extricate that there was a human being involved in this Right. And so when you come when you compare and contrast those two things, you go from one case where uh, you, you have this this person who is certainly a white supremacist, at least uh, certainly, a, you know, a, 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 an opponent of racial justice in this country. There's an AP fact check that pointed out that Rittenhouse supposedly uh, was opposed to racial justice protesters. Right. There's no evidence at any point that that's actually the case. Right. And so you have these things finding their way into fact checks. Right. In one case. And then in this other case, we suspend our disbelief. And to be frank, I think it's really good when we suspend our disbelief, at least to at least until we get the facts and the data to be able to come out and then draw some conclusions. But the rush to draw those conclusions when it's consistent with a narrative that, you know, the 85 percent or so of people in the media who lean left are are drawn to and find attractive, as do their viewers and their readers. Uh, when, when we rush to, to kind of smooth over all of those details, we lose a lot of the important aspects of reporting. And so that, that to me is, is a classic, what, what the Rittenhouse case really is a classic example of. Uh, and it was a rush to judgment in that front and ended up missing the mark on, on the meaningful facts involved. Well, I mean, there, there's two reasons you would do this, right? Because you're trying to please an audience who wants, you, who wants to believe things fit in these boxes, or you're trying to drive an outcome. I mean, if you look at the coverage of stories like this, if you look at the coverage of 
uh, of stories that have policy implications. Mm-hmm. There's a clear, there's all, you know, there's an, a clear agenda usually behind the way things are covered because you're trying to drive a policy outcome. And that none of that is journalism, by the way. It's right. advocacy. Right. And there's a role for advocacy in this world. But when it masquerades uh, as something else, I think it's damaging. You, you raised an issue that I, that I think you should expound upon because I think it's vital. And it's just this absolute lack of skepticism, whether mm-hmm. it's in the Rittenhouse case or the Smollett case. You know, all these cases where, you know, it, it was made immediately to fit so neatly. No one ever stops and says, well, wait a minute. You know, nothing is ever this clean. You know, nothing is ever this neat. Nothing ever fits into the, you know, to the pegs on this board as perfectly. Maybe we should ask a few more questions. And 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 it makes the average person in flyover country or anywhere else wonder, well, is it a lack of skepticism or is it intentional or is it both? I mean, what what's your view on that? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I'm open that I'm maybe just a little bit wet behind the ears on this stuff. Uh, but I do think that by and large, um, it's it's an error rather than something that's a little bit more uh, more deliberately kind of malignant. So I think what it really comes down to is that you have within newsrooms, within the average newsroom, within the average editorial team, there's kind of this monochromatic view of the world and how it operates. And so you've got a whole bunch of people who generally see the world somewhere between kind of 55% progressive, call it, and 75% progressive. They might quibble on the margins, but that for 70% of the average political disposition, you don't have a representation in the average newsroom. Uh, and, you, and if you do, it's, a, it's a, a, a minority state, right? You look at an example like a Barry Weiss from the New York Times, who was, I don't know, probably the most conservative college student once upon a time in an Ivy League class, but certainly isn't a, you know, what, what most conservatives would think of as kind of this rock-ribbed you know, or fire-breathing conservative. And so up until that viewpoint, you, you just don't have people representing it. I think because of that, there are certain blind spots. There are certain questions that you ask if you are having to meet someone in good faith where you don't share an identical view of the world. Sometimes that's something like, well, I don't know, maybe a 17-year-old with a with a gun might have a place when a city is burning down. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, you mentioned the Smollett case. I, I think that there's there's a desire also to be first. So I think it's two things. First, I think it's, it's mostly errors made in good faith. It's a rush to be first as well. And so I think the rush to be first can force people to suspend maybe some of the questions that they should be asking in their mind. I mean, this and the Smollett case is a classic example of that. If someone had just stepped back and thought, wow, isn't it odd that on one of the coldest nights of the year in Chicago, the two most racist fans of Empire happen to be outside walking around at the exact same time as Jesse Small. Like if you just kind of ask those questions, rather than say, we have another case of race, maybe we have this horrible violence, we have a terrible legacy in this country of, of, of racism and racist violence, and look, it's happened again. Rather than jump to that necessary conclusion every time these sorts of things happen, I think you would have a, a lot fewer of these misses uh, and they take off quickly. And that's that's another part of the problem with this race to be first. I think I think the, the race to be first is is corrosive. And I but I think what people know is that if you can if you are the first one to take a, a circumstance or a story and fit it into one of these narrative boxes, these pre-approved narratives, the echo chamber for those narratives is so powerful. So if you fit the Smollett case or you fit the Rittenhouse case or you take whatever happens next week, three weeks yeah. from now, and you, you're the first one to kind of string it together, fit it in the box, you know there is a powerful 
echo chamber out there online, Mm -hmm. in media, across Democratic politicians. Don't forget, one of the most powerful drivers of the Smollett narrative were all the people running for president of the United States from Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, I think, was first. And so and so the knowledge of knowing that that support system for your stuff, your content exists, I think, is often too powerful, uh, powerful for people to resist. You're on the Flyover Country podcast. I'm Scott Jennings. Thank you for being with us today. Our guest is Drew Holden, who is a freelance writer uh, and a prolific threader on Twitter. And you can find him on Twitter at Drew Holden 360. I follow him. I followed him for a long time. And I think what he does on Twitter is fascinating, important, uh, and brings a lot of uh, a sanity uh, to uh, some of the stories and information you see out there, because often what we see is uh, not true. And uh, Drew uh, shines a light on uh, on a lot of it. Uh, Drew, you fact check and, and do these threads on media outlets often. You also have uh, have shined some lights on the Biden White House recently. Uh, the White House um, sent out a list of accomplishments, a year-end list of accomplishments for themselves, and it went out to a select group of reporters. You then discovered this was happening and that media outlets were then issuing these things uh, and tweeting them out word for word. Yeah. I was wondering if you might, it's one of your latest threads. If you go to at Drew Holden 360, you can see it. thought you might want to talk about that a little bit because it's getting a lot of, uh, of attention out there in the uh, uh, in the conservative news world right now. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so the, the Biden White House sends out, again, to, to a handful of friendly reporters, they say, hey, look, these are a list of accomplishments. This is what we were able to do in the past year. Um, and it was ham-handed, I think, to put it mildly. They had a, a number of facts and stats where they're talking about things like vaccination rates over the last year and how much they've changed without at any point kind of getting into the weeds and the details of, well, you know, a year and a week ago, the first vaccine went into somebody's arm. So, of course, we're going to see a pretty considerable, regardless of any steps taken by the administration, obviously, we're going to see it. Um, and then, but where I think it really kind of ran off the rails a little bit was that it also dealt with the issue of inflation, which, of course, the Biden administration is taking a lot of flack for. Uh, there's a recent poll, an ABC Ipsos poll, actually, that came out that uh, about 70% of Americans think that Biden's handling of inflation and prices is is bad. And that's that includes a majority of Democrats. We yes. also agree that this is a problem. So Biden administration says that they've they've taken uh, considerable action to address these things. They talked one about how they had released uh, oil from the strategic oil reserves, which naturally wouldn't uh, even be necessary if they hadn't done things like shut down pipelines across the country uh, that, that are good for delivering oil. But I really think that the, the richest of all of them, and they, they, they held this up as a, a victory, right? An important data point that's a victory was that gas prices had gone down almost 10 cents from their recent highs. Uh, anyone, I think, who has driven past the pump at any point in the last few months has noticed that prices have spiked pretty considerably. Uh, the prices remain incredibly high. There's been a little bit of a, a dip down recently, and they've held that up as a data point, which, uh, while not only intellectually disingenuous because it's, it's obvious they're not really driving these prices down, uh, it's also a little bit silly when this same administration had said, you know, a couple of months prior that they had no control over these things. They're, they're, it's external sources that are driving all this. It's not that all. So I looked at it and I saw it and I was like, you know what? Maybe people won't pick it up. It, it seems a little bit ridiculous. Every administration has to have some spin and some PR to kind of help themselves out. 
Uh, but then I noticed shortly after I, I posted the thread that Axios, an outlet that I like and trust and read pretty often, had mm-hmm. put up a story that was essentially all of their talking points for the first 90% of this story, right? Axios, they do shorter stories. They had one sentence as kind of a caveat at the very end that pointed out that people and businesses were frustrated by inflation and then closed with what the Biden administration was talking about. I remember I looked at it and I thought, I just, I wish everyday Americans knew that this was how the sausage was made in so many of these cases. Because it really is, there's no fact finding, there's no reporting, there's no real evidence gathering. It's, hey, here's what we think about ourselves. Cut, copy, paste, drop in, send out to readership with a tiny, tiny little caveat that obviously doesn't cover the vast majority of what what was pretty facially ridiculous about the memo they had sent out in the first place. Yeah, the, the uh, what the Biden White House did and then what some media outlets were willing to do for them was really fascinating to me when you uh, consider um, just how differently a reporter would have treated that from Trump mm-hmm. uh, or George W. Bush. And it it I think a lot of people are just asking, what is the role of the of the Washington press corps? When a Democrat is president versus when a Republican is president, and my view is they should be skeptical and hard on all of them. Right, and uh, and I think that's what most Americans would expect. Uh, but it but the thing you expose tells us that, that that maybe that's not the case. And when you consider, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, when you consider just how often the Biden White House has been willing to lie, shade the truth, <laughs> spin things in a very very dishonest way. Uh, they do it all the time. And I'm not here to say Donald Trump didn't, because obviously right. he said things all the time that were totally erroneous, made up out yep. of thin air. Yep. And, and he got everything he deserved, uh, you know, for for doing that. Yeah. But why doesn't Joe Biden deserve and why doesn't his White House deserve the same kind of treatment when they're willing? Because to me, it's disrespectful of the press. Right. If, 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 they, right. if they tell you something, you know, uh, that's not true. They're, they're almost disrespecting you, saying, we know you won't do anything about it, or we know you're not smart enough to figure it out, or we know you're a exactly. lapdog. And I don't know. I just, I, just find it, I just find it to be amazing uh, that, that, that reporters aren't harder on them. I mean, I, first yeah. of all, are you surprised the level of which the Biden White House is dishonest? I mean, the entire campaign he ran against Trump was, this guy's a liar and I'm not. I mean, that was, that was mm-hmm. essentially mm-hmm. the underpinning of everything, yet here right. we are. Yeah, you know... I, I'm a little bit surprised, I think. I think that there, I kind of expected after Biden had, had won the election that he would kind of come back a little bit more to the fold uh, and be a little bit more moderate in a lot of things, right? From from policy to disposition to certainly the, the way that his administration has dealt with the press. And I think, you know, you've seen a, a few different examples, particularly, I think, with, with, with Jen Psaki up there in the briefing room when she's talking to reporters, that she says things that are are just nonsensical, right? And, and she'll get pushed from, from time to time. But I think it I think it's what it's really emblematic of is the Democratic Party, particularly over the last four years of Donald Trump, has gotten enormously comfortable with the idea that part of the role of the press is to attack the bad guys being Republicans and go a little bit easier on on the Democrats because they are the 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 adults in the room. Right. And that I think for a period of time, there is this sentiment within the media that, well, sure, maybe this statement from Joe Biden shaded the truth a little bit. 
But look yeah. at what Trump was saying. Yeah, he could so He's not anywhere near as bad. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's completely out of hand. And so I think you, I, I think it, the the Democrats in a lot of ways were kind of lulled into this sense of, well, these guys got our back, right? Like if their job is to call balls and strikes, and we're playing baseball against Donald Trump, then the balls and strikes are going to go our way, even if they're not perfect, right? Even if they're not, even if they're not necessarily advocating for us that these things are going to shake out. And I think they're now realizing that once they get into power, that's a lot harder. Uh, and, you know, while it is harder, while there is more pushback, I think that the way that the, the press, generally speaking, reacted to the withdrawal from Afghanistan really caught the Biden administration by surprise because they assumed that these folks were, were going to work hand in glove with them on the details. And it's so hard. And we promised we'd do this thing that when they did come at them in a more dogged way, it was incredibly surprising. Uh, but it seems like after that, they've kind of gone back to this assumption that as long as they're willing to as, as long as they're willing to be nicer to the press than Donald Trump, that the press will do a pretty good job of carrying their talking points. Yeah, I, it's interesting. And I have to give uh, most media outlets credit around the Afghanistan debacle. Um, just about everybody correctly was hard on the Biden administration, Biden himself. Right. Uh, and, you know, on him personally, on the administration's execution, on the, you know, from top to bottom. Uh, that was a thorough job that was done to expose the incompetence and and the real, you know, the draining of American prestige. Um, and right. but, but I think what happened was I think every, everybody came to realize that that moment is where Biden really sort of fell off the table in terms of his own job approval. It sucked a lot of his uh, oxygen out of the room. It, it it reduced his effectiveness overall, I think, to to manage public affairs in Washington. And now I think there's there's a scramble to try to put him back up on a pedestal, but it's not, yeah. it's not working. And, and uh, because ever since Afghanistan, there's just been a persistent anvil, you know, basically on, yeah. on, on Biden's head. Um, let me ask you a question, simple question. And I don't know if you've thought about it much, but do you consider yourself to be a journalist? Because I, I was thinking about this interview and we're talking about journalism and we're talking about what you do around journalism. And I thought, well, what do I depend on journalists for to give me true factual information about things I care about that impact my world? Well, that's what you do. And so <laughs> do you do you consider you work in public affairs, same as me. We're, you know, we're both in the same sort of space. But I actually think if you when I open up my Twitter feed and I see your name, I think, well, here's here comes Drew with the journalism. Do you consider yourself to be one? Well, first, thank you. You know, I've always been. I've always been a little bit hesitant to apply the label journalist to myself. I think it's probably for two reasons. One, I mean, I don't, right, I work in public affairs. I, I do, I moonlight and I do this thing and I do the threads. But uh, what's running through it for me always is commentary. I have my own views of the world and how it works and how it operates. And I don't think I'm particularly impartial. I try to be impartial. And I think I'm, I think I probably take more pains to be impartial than lots and lots of people who, like myself, talk too much on Twitter. Uh, but but I'm not in any meaningful sense, I think, un you know, I, I'm not unbiased in the way that I approach these issues. So I am, I'm hesitant to apply the label journalist. But then when I really step back and think about it, you know, again, at, at the risk of some self-flattery, I think that's the goal, right? That's what I'm trying to do is that I'm trying to be informative. And at the end of the day, I'm certainly not trying to be the sort of resource that only a Republican is interested in, right? Like, I want to be able to help journalists. I want to be able to help media outlets who tend to lean left and people on the other side of the aisle, including Democrats, to just tell, to be better, to be more honest. Uh, and so while I think I struggle a little bit with the label journalist, I'm, I'm coming around to the idea that maybe the sort of thing that I do and the variety of commentary that I do might be closer to journalism than, than to anything else. 
Well, if you look at a lot of media outlets today, they they employ people who who I, I think they they characterize as journalists whose job is media watchdog. You know, CNN right. has one, Fox has. I mean, you know, most of the outlets have somebody who's sort of on the media beat. And I candidly, I don't I don't know what the difference is between what you do and what they do. And and I think uh, I think you do it very well. Um, and I think I think what you said about your point of view, though, is is interesting because even in that, you're honest about who you are. And I think I, I think, you know, and, and I think the average journalist doesn't they want everyone to believe they're impartial, that they don't have a point of mm-hmm. view, but it's perfectly mm-hmm. natural to have a point of view. And I actually think being honest about who you are enhances your own credibility because you're willing to say it up front. I was looking at some tweets yesterday after Joe Manchin uh, dropped the bomb on BBB. And of course, the most egregious one, maybe you disagree, but I thought the most egregious one was Sam Stein yep. of Politico, Ooh, yeah. who said, objectively speaking, <laughs> this is devastating for the planet. Right. And and. I, I mean, it's just it's just sort of a it's a reminder that at the end of the day, everybody has a point of view and that's fine. But to me, the most credible people are the ones who are willing to tell you, well, here is my point of view and I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah, and, and I, I think I think part of that, too, Scott, is that it, it matters in the micro for the person. But I think it also really matters in the more macro in the newsroom. Right. Because one of the things that I keep coming back to is this idea that it's fine if, if, if the Sam Steins of the world have political beliefs. Everyone has political beliefs. Right? It's fine if they're if in their heart of hearts, there are candidates they like more than others. But I think where it really becomes a problem is when 80 percent or so. And I keep using that 80 percent figure. There's a study uh, out of the, the University of Indiana, I think, back in 2014 that found that only about 16% of journalists and newsrooms across the country, that includes local outlets and other places, are Republicans, that the overwhelming majority of them are independents, but independents are aligned with Democrats. And then there's also a lot more independents, about, or a lot more Democrats than Republicans, about five to one. So when you work out all the numbers, it's at about 84% of journalists, give or take. And this was a different era, right? When there are probably more conservative journalists uh, aren't conservative. And so for me, I think one of the reasons I want to be upfront about it is so that people understand what I'm saying and where I'm coming from. Part of it, too, is I want to be open and honest about my blind spots. I think one of the mm-hmm. big problems, if you look at, say, the New York Times' coverage of the Russian collusion narrative, is that what it's what it's missing and what, what probably could have helped it is if there were people who were sitting in that room when they're writing these Pulitzer Prize winning pieces who supported President Trump or who at least understood President Trump or why someone would vote for someone like President Trump. And so you've got these blind spots that end up bubbling up where when the numbers are skewed so overwhelmingly towards people with a certain view of the world, that they've all kind of got these same blind spots. And so what I'm trying to do, and I'm sure there are other, you know, there are media reporters, as you mentioned, at Fox and other places who are trying to do that, who's just trying to kind of hold up that sign and say, look, this is what you're missing, right? You're, you're, you're taking a turn. You can't see it on your right and you're crashing into the car on the right of you because it was in your blind spot. That's what I'm trying to be able to reveal, I think, to these folks. Uh, and that's why I think that having someone who is, uh, call me a media reporter for a second, like having someone who writes about the media is important because that lens through which people view these issues, all issues really, is incredibly important. You're listening to Drew Holden here on the Flyover Country podcast. That's our guest this week. I'm Scott Jennings. Thanks for being with us, Drew. Um, I want to ask you one more thing before we get to the famous lightning round. And it has to do with um, conservative engagement on social media. Your big medium is Twitter. You have 145,000 Twitter followers. Um, it feels like an arena, though, in which conservatives uh, 
I think sometimes have issues with consistently being able to reach audiences. Mm-hmm. You've obviously built up a, a pretty large following. What has, if you had advice for conservatives, uh, what what is it in terms of building audience and then achieving some level of consistency? And then do you ever feel like you you are experiencing uh, any sort of interruption in, in information delivery? I, I will just say, mm-hmm. I've, I've talked to a lot of conservatives over the last few weeks and there seems to be something going on out there about, you know, occasionally I tweet and it gets, it goes huge. And occasionally I tweet and nothing happens. And there seems to be no rhyme or reason to it. Was curious about these issues and your, um, your experience with it uh, over the last couple of years. Yeah, happy to. So I think my, in terms of advice, I, I kind of have two things that I try and treat as, as something close to a North Star. The first thing I know we've talked about a little bit is be be clear about your own biases and then make a deliberate effort to, uh, to to try to see them or try and recognize how they how they bleed into your view of the world and your view on particular facts, stories you're writing about, things like that. So I think that's probably the first one. And, and the second one, um, which is advice I think I've, I've heard from a handful of, uh, of of reporters and other people with more experience in this universe than I do. Then I think it's important is be earnest. I think that there's there's a I, I hope it's a fad, but I don't know if it's quite that passing. But a lot of younger reporters and younger people on Twitter and who want to kind of make a name for themselves in the media or wherever it is, uh, it can be easy to be flip and sarcastic and, and and you know try and make witty jokes all the time. Uh, and I'm not saying be a bore, right, and be be lame, uh, but I, I think it's I think it's really worth being earnest on these things. And if you if you want people to take you seriously, it's not that you can't post dog pictures from time to time, uh, but that you should really try and be earnest and objective as often as you can. And it's worth doing that. And particularly for for you know young young writers who I talk to, that's one of the big points I want them to take away is treat yourself seriously. Because if you can't get far enough to treat yourself seriously, I guarantee you the rest of the world is going to have a very very hard time taking you seriously at all. So that's Drew Holden. In terms of it. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say in, in terms of advice, that's, that's where yeah. I, where I tend to net out, at least from my experience on the platform. Do you ever feel like you put stuff out that is, that is, I mean, the term is shadow banning, but I, I don't, I don't know exactly what that means, except to yeah. say that it does seem like sometimes certain content doesn't reach the same uh, audience levels that, that it might, you know, seem like it should. Do you ever feel like that happens to your stuff? Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You know, I, I really haven't, um, I have felt it happen to me as a consumer, as a you know, as a receiver of other people's tweets, where I'll, I'll sit back and think, man, I haven't seen a tweet from Dana Loesch, who I've interacted with a ton of times. I haven't seen her tweet anything in, it seems like, weeks. And I'll go to her profile and she'll have all these tweets. I think, like, why, why aren't these finding their way into my feed? I, I haven't really felt it, though. Um, hmm. And it might, be, it might be because it's, it's happening to me. It's not quite as egregious. It might be that I'm just missing it. Uh, but, but no, I don't think I've... I don't think I've ever sent something out and then thought, where on earth did that go? Hmm, interesting. Drew Holden, you've been a you've been a great guest. Uh, and now we're going to play the lightning round game. With the end of each uh, Flyover Country podcast, every guest gets to have a lightning round, a short answer or one answer uh, questions and uh, answer them however you wish. But it is lightning and the name lightning is for a reason. Number one, where does Drew get his news every day? Mostly the New York Times. New York Times, number one. All right, number two. Who is the who is your best non political follow on Twitter? Oh, great question. I, I feel the lightning ticking ticking down. <laughs> um, there there are a number of athletes who I think are great, and as Cantor is one who has recently gotten political. So if he counts as non political, sure, he's my lightning. 
And who's your who's your worst follow on Twitter? The one you're most embarrassed about? Jen Rubin. <laughs> Jen Rubin, Washington Post, and I follow her religiously. Yeah, yeah, she's uh, she's something else. Um, do you think Donald Trump should be allowed back on Twitter? Yes, I think he should. Do you have a favorite tweet of all time that you have written that you consider to be the Drew Holden gold standard tweet? Yeah, you know, I, I've got it pinned. Uh, it's that I think a lot of people one day are going to have egg on their face when they uh, when when we learn more about the origins of coronavirus and they wrote off the idea that maybe just maybe it could have come from a level four bio facility that happened to be right down the street from where we first started seeing cases. Do you have any New Year's resolutions? Spend less time on Twitter. <laughs> I, I, I'm not confident I'll do it, uh, but I think I'm, I'm going to try and pull myself off of the platform and news in general. A little bit, not a lot, but a little bit. What is your boldest political prediction for 2022? So I think there'll be a red wave uh, and I think it will be, I think it will make 2010 look mundane. I think it will be substantially dramatic. All right, since you think there's going to be a red wave, do you believe Kevin McCarthy will be the next Speaker of the House? Yeah, given a lack of other options, I, I think he will be. Any predictions on which politician will be involved in the next biggest political scandal? It's got to be Ron DeSantis because he's ascendant. And I'm sure that there are a lot of people investing an enormous amount of time uh, and they'll come up with something, even if it's not very good. Do you believe that your own Twitter account will be suspended at any point in 2022? No, I don't think it will be. (laughs) All right. Drew Holden. At Drew Holden 360 is where we find you on Twitter, and you do write articles from time to time. You've written for the New York Times, Fox News, the Washington Post, National Review Online. Uh, anywhere else folks can find you if they want to see your stuff, or is that the main stuff? I, that's the main stuff I've written a little bit recently for the Washington Free Beacon, so you'll see me there lately as well. All right, Drew, you've been a great guest. Thanks for joining us on Flyover Country. Scott, pleasure's mine. Really appreciate you having me. Thanks. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Five-star reviews will help us keep making the content that you love. To find my latest television hits, columns, and other commentary, go to scottjenningsky.com. And you can also find me at Scott Jennings KY on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, make sure your seat backs and folding trays are in their full upright position. Cabin crew, please take your seats for landing and thank you for choosing Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. 